Are you here? Are you here? Now, I don't want to assume, but I'm going to level with you. I knew you were here. I, I knew. I knew you were here before you even thought about it. Now, you may wonder, just how did I know? Well, that, my friend, is the nature of the Paul Leslie Hour. And I'm pleased you're checking out this episode. This is an interview from the archives with the remarkable Melissa Manchester. Now, your host, Paul Leslie, the interviewer, was born in the 1980s. But you may like to know that he spent a lot of time mellowing out all by himself listening to Melissa Manchester on old, scratchy vinyl records. You can kind of picture that, can't you? Big turntable. Mm-hmm. Drop the needle in the slot, and there she goes. And by the way, we think you'll enjoy checking out the latest single from Melissa Manchester. The song is Through the Eyes of Love, written by Marvin Hamlish and Carol Bayer Sager. Now that takes you back to the 70s. Anyway, let us know. You already may get an idea that Paul's interview with Melissa Manchester was an easy, laid-back deal. Yeah. Yeah, she phoned in. It was one of those really relaxed phone interviews for radio. Good old radio. You know, these days we're trying our best to get content like this out there to the masses. And to you. We'd love it if you'd consider helping out. Just visit thepaulleslie.com slash support and be a patron of the spoken word. Okay? So now let's let's hear that interview with Melissa Manchester. I know you're going to enjoy this interview, knowing you like I do. And hey, thanks for stopping by. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our great pleasure to welcome singer, songwriter, recording artist Melissa Manchester. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Who is Melissa Manchester? Well, <laughs> well, as you said, I am a singer-songwriter. I've been an actress. I'm a wife, and most importantly, I'm a mom of two splendid young adults. And I'm a performer, which brings me great joy. And I've had a very long career I'm very grateful for. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell. What was the Manchester household like growing up? Well, it was a very lively household. My sister and I grew up in New York City, in the Bronx, and in Manhattan. My father was a bassoonist with the Metropolitan Opera for 30 years, and my mother was a clothing designer. She virtually created the junior market, and she was one of the first women to have her own successful manufacturing and design firm on 7th Avenue. I grew up with lots of cousins and friends. I was a street kid. I went to the high school of performing arts. I started singing commercials when I was 15 years old. I held many different interesting jobs in the city. I was an usher at the Vivian Beaumont Theater. I parked cars for a theater company. I worked as an intern in the editing room of Sesame Street during their first season. And in singing commercials, I got to meet 
very interesting, fantastically talented people like Barry Manilow and Patty Austin and Simpson and Ashford. So, yeah, it was very, very interesting. I imagine there was a lot of music playing around the house. Well, sure. I mean, my dad was either practicing bassoons for the operas that he would be performing in, or my mom would listen to a lot of Broadway music or jazz or rock and roll, and my sister and I took piano lessons. So, yeah, there was always music and always singing. Can you remember when you started to kind of form your own musical identity? Well, when I was five years old, I heard Ella Fitzgerald singing Gershwin, and that was a major sign post for me. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And so school was a great inconvenience. <laughs> I, was a, I was a real daydreamer, not not very studious. But that's that's when I started listening to all sorts of singers, you know, Ella, of course, and Judy Garland, and Sarah Vaughn and Edith Piaf, and Billie Holiday, and Rosie Clooney, and that whole gang of rarefied performers. Can you remember when you began to write? Yes, I started writing poetry when I was 14, mostly because I liked the look of young people walking around with notepads. I I thought that was cool. I always liked props. And I actually started filling in the the notepads with poetry, and I became published when I was about 15. And it was a poem about the great jazz giant Horace Silver. And so I started keeping diaries, you know, when I was about 14, 15, diaries or journals, and I do have those collective journals under my piano now, and who knows, one day it'll be a book or something, I don't know. You started studying acting. Did you know from an early age that creation was something that was going to be a big part of your future? Yes, I knew that something creative certainly was, and most fortunately, because we lived in New York City, the High School of Performing Arts was an option. My sister had gone there five years prior. It was a public school, and you auditioned, and you were there on your honor, because since it was not private, you couldn't be bought (laughs) to stay, you know, to find your place there. So you had to keep your studies together, and it was fantastic. Half the day was about studying academics, and the other half was studying about craft, you know, the craft of acting and movement and all that. It was very unusual. And then after I studied at the High School Performing Arts, I went for one year to New York University School of Experimental Theater, where I met two friends, Jeff Sweet, who is now a playwright of Great Note, and Britt Mitchell, and they had me singing songs for them when they would apply to publishing companies, and I ended up getting a publishing deal and not them as a young writer, because I learned from them how to write a song. And then a year later, they signed me up. After I'd left NYU, they signed me up for a course that Paul Simon was teaching at NYU. And so I studied songwriting with Paul Simon for six months, and that was extraordinary. What was Paul Simon like as a teacher? He was really fantastic. You know, I I think he he felt like teaching. He had six months free, bridge over trouble, the waters with number one all over the place. And so he auditioned everybody himself, and he chose you know, a room full of very different types of students, songwriters. My friends, Brett and Jeff, wanted to write the Great American Musical. Uh, Two of the Roche sisters were in the class. It was just fantastic, and it was very simply run. 
you know, every week we had to come up with a song and somebody would be chosen to perform the song, including Paul, and we'd analyze the song and just discuss it. And every once in a while he'd bring in a, a special guest. At one point, you know, the great violinist Isaac Stern came in to sit in his tuxedo. He had just come from Carnegie Hall or some function. And it was unbelievable. And what I learned from him, you know, I've, I've kept it in my back pocket ever since. Tell us about the days of performing in the Greenwich Village. I paid very hard dues, and that started in Greenwich Village. I played at a place called Gertie Folk City. It was the site of sort of the it was the beginning for, I guess, Bob Dylan, Simon and Garfunkel, Joni Mitchell, lots of people. But it was a tough place because the fellow who ran it insisted that you play three sets a night, whether there was anybody there or nobody there. And sometimes it was just me and my musicians and a drunk at the bar. <laughs> but my, my dad, God bless him, would come down after playing at the opera in his tuxedo with my mom, you know, in the middle of the night, and they would cheer me on, and it was very touching. But I played lots of the coffee houses around New York State that were affiliated with the colleges, and it was tough. It was really, really tough. Those were very um, rough places to play, and in those days, I didn't have an electric keyboard. You know, I just played with any, on any piece of crap piano that they had, usually with my back to the audience. I honed my craft there. Our special guest is Melissa Manchester. Tell us about meeting Bette Midler and Barry Manilow. I met Barry Manilow while singing commercials. He was a commercial singer as well, also a young up-and-coming songwriter. I had sung on a demo of his, and anyway, we had seen each other a lot, sung together a lot in the in the studios, and he told me that he was a musical director for this young performer named Beth Midler, and as it turned out, she was performing at a club on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which was sort of diagonally across from the club that I was playing at. Her club was called the Continental Bass, and the club I was playing at was called the Focus. And she came over with Barry one evening to see me perform. She had just been on the, the Johnny Carson show for the first time, and that was a big deal. So they came to see my show, and in between my sets, I went over and introduced myself, and it was lovely, and and I congratulated her for her performance. And I said, what are you up to? And she said, well, I'm, I'm getting ready to you know, do my first Carnegie Hall concert. She said, wow, would you... Would you like to sing in back of me? And I thought to myself, and I said, well, actually, I'd like to sing instead of you, but I'd be happy to sing in back of you. Neat. So Barry and I put together what became the Harlot, and I worked for her for six months. I was the toots in the middle. It was great. It was great. You know, she was, she's a totally brilliant woman, and Barry is just so staggeringly talented. And So, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. It was a great adventure. It must have been a dream come true to play Carnegie Hall. Well, you know, Carnegie Hall is everybody's dream who grows up in New York who, who wants to be a performer. And, yes, it was great. I never played Carnegie Hall with her. I played Lincoln Center with her. But I also played a lot of clubs in, across the country with her. But, yes, I did play Carnegie Hall after I stopped working for her and when I got a recording contract with Bell Records. What was that experience like? Well, it was fantastic. And it also came... So soon that I don't think I was totally present. I was as present as you can be, you know, when you're 26 years old, I guess, which is not terribly present. But it was fantastic, and it was sold out, and it was 
and lots of friends came and lots of fans came. And I really hope I get the chance to do it again now that I'm much older and much more seasoned and my heart and my mind is much more mature because it's fantastic. It's filled with the most fantastic ghosts. And it would be grand to do it again. But it was great, and it was great to play Radio City Music Hall. I mean, these are landmark places. It's not nothing to have said that you performed in those places, because they're grand. Of the songs you've written and recorded, would it be possible to pick a favorite? The one that I'm... uh, No, I mean, no, because they they all are so special. And for me, I'm, I'm so very grateful about this journey that I've been able to walk for such a long time, that that this, this interesting notion actually turned into a job of the future because the artist's life is, is a very arduous one and it's really not for most people because you, you have to keep creating it, you know. But in answer to your question, I think Midnight Blue is the one that touches me so because it was the first and because it's, it's hopeful in sort of a bittersweet way. So I think there's something very human about it. And I think that Charles Sager's lyrics are just incredible. And what about your albums? Could you pick a favorite album of yours? Well, I don't know that I could pick a favorite album. I'm very fond of Better Days and Happy Endings. I think there's a lot of great music on that one. I love Home to Myself. I love the tribute album because it gave me a chance to pay tribute to so many of the singers that really informed my soul. So that was grand to be able to do that. And I love my latest album, When I Look Down That Road. It was the first album of original songs that I'd made in, in about 10 years. And I got the chance to co-produce that with uh, Kevin DeRemer and Stefan Oberhoff. So it's a different sound. It's very quiet. But there's a song on there called A Mother's Prayer, which closes the album. And it's the only cut that's recorded live. It really speaks to... It really reflects my feeling about being a mother, and and I think that it resonates with people who, whether they have children in their lives or not. Your songs have been recorded by just some incredible recording artists. Barbara Streisand, Johnny Mathis, Roberta Flack. Which one just blew your mind? When Barbara Streisand recorded Just One Lifetime, it was, it was just astounding. She was getting ready to record uh, an album for her new husband, James Brolin, and I co-wrote a song with Tom Snow that I had sung many years prior, but when I played it for her, she loved the choruses but couldn't follow the verses, and so we rewrote it, we reconstructed it for her, and not only did she end up recording it, but she ended up singing it at her wedding, so that was thrilling, and when I found out that she was going to do that. I just was screaming and crying, and my mother was screaming and crying. It was just it was just fantastic. So she was one of those mavericks, you know, that showed up on the New York scene and, and really shined a different kind of light of who could be a singer, who could break through this stereotype of, of what was being presented as a successful singer in the 50s and 60s. Great. Thrilling. You've been involved in so many facets of the arts. From songwriting, performing, recording, writing a musical, do you have a preferred medium? What I truly am is a concert performer. I mean, that that is my heart. But all of those facets, being a songwriter, being a composer for musical theater, an animated film, 
they're all facets of the same initial impulse, which is to express one's creativity. I can't pick a favorite, I'm afraid. They all work really, <laughs> they all really fit me well. When you look back at your career, what are you the most proud of? I think what I'm proudest of is that it has been a career of substance and longevity and that I've been able to create a family in the midst of it. My husband and I have been married a long time. My kids are wonderful human beings. To say that you can't have it all is not true. I just could you just can't have it all at the same time. I made a lot of time and room for my career in the beginning. I stopped working for many years when I was raising my kids. And now that they're back, now that they're big, I can be back. And it's it's lovely. And now the the adventures just seem to show up now anew. And I'm just more and more grateful for all of it. I'm also more aware that the power of a song is phenomenal. You know, it can change a heart. It can change a nation. I don't take any of that for granted. So I'm very grateful. What do you like the most about music? What I like the most about music is that it resonates in a person's soul. And it can frequently release a feeling that had long been buried. In other words, it can help you remember something that you didn't even know that you had forgotten. And only music can do that. Only songs can give a voice to an emotion that has not been articulated by the listener. And, and that's why it is amazing after my shows when people come up and tell me what the songs meant to them. It so often has nothing to do with my original intention in writing the song. And so it's these unexpected gifts that are just amazing. You know, people cheerfully tell me how a song helped them get through a very difficult time or, or help them commit to a relationship or choose not to commit suicide or any of these things where you think, really? All I was doing was facing a, a blank piece of paper when this all started. So it's, it's very profound and it's very dear and it's very deep and it's much better than the dream that I had of doing this. Amazing. Yeah. I wanted to talk about this film and the soundtrack for that matter is going to have a lot of your music. It's called Dirty Girl. Correct. Dirty Girl came like a gift directly out of the sky to me. The script is by Abraham Sylvia, first-time screenwriter and director of Dirty Girl. It's about it's a, it's a coming-of-age movie about two incorrigible 16-year-olds who find themselves, they are totally opposite, in a detention class one year in a high school in Norman, Oklahoma, 1982. The young boy somehow has a muse that helps him get through the struggles of his life, and that muse is me and my music. And the girl is not interested in me and my music at all. <laughs> but over the course of the soundtrack, snips of about eight of my songs are used. The cast is fantastic. It's Mary Steenburgen and Dwight Yoakam and William Macy and Tim McGraw, Juno Temple. And it's opening in October, opening wide. Uh, the soundtrack will be coming out as well. And Mary Steenburgen turns out to be a fantastic lyricist. She and I wrote an original song for the movie called Rainbird, and that will be included in the movie and in the soundtrack. And it, it was just unbelievable. I have a little tiny cameo in it. It's just fantastic. It's funny and beautiful and heartwarming and real, and it's lovely. 
in the Barry Manilow song, Could It Be Magic? He has the lyric where he sings, Sweet Melissa. And then he did this duet with you on the album, Greatest Songs of the 70s, You've Got a Friend, where he says that again, Sweet Melissa. So, in the Barry Manilow song, Could It Be Magic, is he referring to you when he says, Sweet Melissa? I'm told he sort of was. I'm also told that my my name is very singable. <laughs> so I'll I'll let him I'll let him answer that. But it was very touching when we did the duet and he sang it again. Because we are very old pals and we start at the same time and the enormity of his career and well deserved accolades goes without saying. So it's it's very touching that that we stay in touch and that he thinks fondly of me as I do of him. What is the best thing about being Melissa Manchester? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. Wow. Golly, gee. You know, I had a dream about my life, and I don't think there was anything in me that thought it wouldn't be possible. And even though I was rejected lots and lots and lots of times, and that the audition of an artist's life is really never over, I think my life has been a real gift, and even struggles have taught me about the lessons I needed to learn. So I think that's the way the package looked. It's been very interesting and very substantive and a real blessing. For anyone who's listening in, what would you say to them? For anybody who's listening to this, first of all, And last of all, I'd like to say thank you so much for making me a part of your lives. Thank you for telling me what my songs have meant to you, how it has changed your heart and mind, or maybe the course of a chapter in your life from time to time. Thank you for growing with me. Thank you for introducing me to your children and grandchildren. Thank you for letting me take time out to raise my own children and then come back. Thank you for allowing me to have different chapters in my creative process. That's what the life of an actor and an artist is. We live through the chapters of our lives like everybody else, except that our business is expressing it frequently on behalf of other people. So gratitude. Gratitude is what I have to offer everybody. It sounds like you're a woman with a lot of gratitude. Yes, sir, I am. My gratitude to you. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.